Well, I hope you're enjoying our service. We're continuing in James, and uh, it's a series that we call Faith That Walks, and that's because James keeps telling us that if we have true faith, it shows up in the way we live. It shows in our life, and that's a repeated refrain throughout the book. And when we think about life, I think a lot of times uh, we think about how to make decisions. We make decisions all the time, right? Every day we're making decisions. We're deciding this or that. Decisions that really direct the course of our life. And in order to make those decisions, we need something. We need wisdom. So how many of you have thought about that? How many of you have prayed to God for wisdom? Yeah, I think I've prayed to God for wisdom more than anybody I know. Not that anybody hasn't done more, it's just I wouldn't know it. But I mean, for decades, daily, I've prayed for wisdom. And, uh, and God provides that wisdom. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today. At this point, we, we've left off about the middle of chapter 3 in James. It's only five chapters long. We just got a couple more weeks left. And James poses a question that should be relevant to all of us. Here's what he says. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him, show, let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. Same thing. He's saying just like faith, we should see our faith by how it shows up in our life. Same thing with wisdom. If we have Wisdom from God, it will show up in our lives is basically where he's going with this. And, uh, and so we're confronted by the fact that wisdom is shown by a lifestyle. It's not about what we know. It's about how we live. That's, there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. They're related. They're connected. But the Bible actually talks about both knowledge and wisdom. And it's interesting because we can have knowledge without wisdom, but we cannot have wisdom without knowledge. And one way to, to break that down is knowledge is sort of the accumulation of facts or truth. A lot of times we are guilty of chronological snobbery in the sense of we look at people who have gone on before us and we think, oh, they're not as smart as us because they're not as advanced as we are, you know, in some of the things we can do. But really, there's no wisdom involved with that. What that is, is an accumulation of knowledge. For example, one person invents the wheel and then everybody sees that and they get the concept and they can do it too, but it just took one person to think of it. Then everybody else can come. Well, that's how we build knowledge in our whole culture. And now with computers and the internet and everything else, we can rapidly advance off of other people's work and other people's knowledge and acquire more and more knowledge. But that does not make us wiser at all. And the Bible talks about both, again, Wisdom and knowledge related but not synonymous. And I'll try to point out the difference. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it says here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And really we're learning that wisdom is the ability to discern 
or to judge what's true and right. Wisdom is the ability to rightly apply the knowledge that we have. Knowledge is the information that we gain through experience or reasoning. So there we have the writer saying, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But then later in Proverbs, in Proverbs 9.10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So either way you look at it, wisdom begins, even knowledge begins, true knowledge, with the fear of the Lord. And once we understand that knowledge, then we have the opportunity to gain wisdom through that continued fear of the Lord. And, now, and when we throw that out, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, a lot of people in our culture today, they don't like the sound of that. And I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding on exactly what fear in this context in the Bible means, because it's not just being scared like we might think of it. For example, we can see the difference in Psalm 130, verse 4. It says something interesting, if you've ever gone by this. It says, but there is, this is the psalmist talking to God, but there is forgiveness in you that you may be feared. And we're going, what? We fear the one who forgives? What? What's that all about? That's this awe-struck reverence. The psalmist is saying, hey, there's forgiveness in you. You absorb our debt and you are forgiving. You, you make a way to forgive us, to pay for the debt yourself so that you can forgive us. And because of that truth, you are awesome to behold. You are amazing, you are wonderful, you are respected, you are held up, that kind of fear. So wisdom starts with knowing God. And we need wisdom. And through the rest of this text, after James introduces this topic, he's really going to answer three questions about wisdom. And here's the first one. Where does wisdom come from? Because this might surprise us a little bit because actually James is going to tell us there's two different kinds of wisdom from two different sources and he's contrasting the two. He says there's earthly wisdom and then there's wisdom from above, wisdom from God. And he's telling us, we find out that there's tension between the two, especially for those of us who are believers. We know that we should be following God, but there's a, this tension because we live in this world, there's a temptation for us to default toward earthly or natural wisdom and reject wisdom from above. And so how do we know? How do we know if we're following God's wisdom or earthly wisdom? And then James says just what we might expect James to say. He says, the evidence of which wisdom you follow will show up in your life. That's what he's telling us. And then he describes earthly wisdom in the next, in the next verse, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. 
This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. So he's just describing kind of a mess. It's a, a big mess. It's bad relationships. And this is a result of this natural wisdom. For example, President Biden this last week said that the country is more divided than it's been since the Civil War. And, you know, I don't know if that's true or if it is or if it isn't. It doesn't matter. Just a statement like that tells us we need wisdom as a country. And then I know there are a lot of people sitting in here who goes, hey, you're worried about wisdom for the country. Hey, I need wisdom for my life. I have disorder and conflict in my family. I have a problem in my marriage. And James is telling us that God's wisdom deals with all those things, conflict anywhere in our country, in our family, in our marriages. But the number one thing that James wants us to know, the number one thing that he wants us to get is this will deal with wisdom, will deal with conflict in the church. And that's more important because God's church is the answer for our country and the answer for our families and the answer for our marriages, we can find wisdom from God to deal with all those relationships. That's what he's telling us. And he describes the disorder that earthly wisdom brings into our lives and in our connections with others in our community and communities. And so if that's earthly natural wisdom, then here's the alternative, and that is, as James is describing, wisdom from above. This wisdom is evident when people make decisions based on God's direction in their lives, as revealed in Scripture. It's not good enough to just say, well, I think God wants me to do this, but have no scriptural basis, because all of a sudden that, we have a danger of putting ourselves in the place of God, but as revealed in His Word. So the next verse in verse 17, it says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy, meaning sincere. And so we read this and we're like, well, wow, this is way better than earthly wisdom. I mean, this is spot on. This is like a breath of fresh air compared to what was described before. And not only that, is this God's wisdom, it's available. It's wisdom that has, is from above, but it has come down to us and that we can receive it. Now, James has already told us in the opening of his book in chapter one that if we need wisdom, we can ask God, that wisdom is available, that he wants to give us wisdom. But there's a caveat in there that if we ask in a double-minded way, we will not get wisdom. He's telling us that wisdom's a gift, but we have to seek it, but we can't be double-minded. We can't consider God's wisdom as one option among many and just kind of bounce back and forth between different opinions. We can't receive God's wisdom with that attitude. We have to receive his wisdom with a commitment that we want to follow him. And so wisdom from above is wisdom from God. 
And don't you want God's wisdom in your life? Don't you want to be able to make decisions knowing, yeah, with confidence from his word that this is what God would want me to do? And then I come back to this a lot. It's all about regrets in our life. When we, when we make decisions that are not based on God's wisdom, that are earthly and natural, that always brings regret. And when we make decisions based on what God would want us to do as revealed in his word, that always is better. It never brings regret. We're always glad that we did that. That always brings benefit into our life. Always. And wisdom from above results in a changed life. And not only that, he's telling us in a righteous life. And so then James ends this section with kind of a difficult transitionary statement. It says, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll read a verse like that, a sentence like that in the Bible, and I'll just kind of read right past it. But if I'm thinking, I'll go, what? What, what, what did that mean? I'll, I'll read it again. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What? And what is it? So you have to kind of look at it and analyze it a little bit. He's saying, hey, the fruit, that wisdom, which is reflected in righteous living, the fruit that wisdom reflected in righteous living contains, it contains seed, that fruit does, that produces a further harvest of righteousness. When we do what God would want us to do, then that results in us doing righteous things. But in us doing those righteous things, that living out wisdom that shows up in our life, that brings seed with it that will also produce other righteous things, is basically what he's saying. When we do right, there's an effect all around us from that. And so, the next question is simply, if that's where it comes, and it comes from two different sources, bad and good, then the next question is, well, why do we need it? If that's where we get it, bad or good, well, then why do we need wisdom at all? Why do we have to discern? Because wisdom from above will deal with quarrels and conflicts. Wisdom from above will help us come together. But earthly wisdom does just the opposite, he's teaching us. Wisdom from above is vital to relationships. And that's what James comes back to, not having that disorder. Earthly wisdom creates conflicts and quarrels with other people, but also with us and God. Earthly wisdom in our life will produce Conflicts with other people and conflict with God. So James explains that. Now we've just crossed over into chapter 4. So chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source? He asks another question. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's an interesting question because if anybody's asking you, hey, so why the problem? Why is there a conflict? Why are you guys fighting? The way we always answer that is, well, because they right? We all, well, why is this happening? Well, because of that other person. They're in conflict with me. We always point to an external source, and James is saying, that's wrong. Conflicts don't actually come from the outside. He says, conflict comes from what's inside of us. 
Conflict has an internal source in our own hearts. He continues in verse one, he says, is not, and then he's going to tell us, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And he uses some interesting words here. The word he uses for pleasure here is hedone, where we get the word hedonism. It's pleasure, kind of self-pleasure, whatever brings pleasure. And then the word lust that we don't throw around a lot here is, is the word epithemeo, and that means to over-desire something. It could be a bad thing, but it could be a good thing that we are, because of our over-desire of it, it turns into a negative in our life. We over-desire things because we believe they will bring gratification and satisfaction to our lives. That's kind of the lust word that he's talking about. We desire something so bad, and we think this is going to fix our problems, satisfy us, gratify us. We want it so bad that we'll do anything to get it. And when we'll do anything to get it, ultimately that leads to conflict with other people. Ultimately, if it gets worse, that leads to hate of other people. And ultimately, if that gets acted out, that's the murder thing. You know, we want them gone. We want them out of the picture so we can have our way. Conflict happens when we want to gratify ourselves. Desires within us are the source of our conflicts. It's the whole attitude of it's about me. It's about my needs. It's my needs above your needs. That creates the struggle. And he's telling us, this earthly wisdom not only causes conflicts with other people, but earthly wisdom brings us into conflict with God. Because as things don't go right for us and we keep searching for satisfaction and never attain it and gratification and it never lasts and we keep doing that, ultimately we turn to God and sort of start blaming God. Here's the way James puts it. We continue in verse two. He says, but you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That same word, hedonism, on that pleasures. So he's saying, hey, there's some good things that you don't have and it's because you haven't asked God. There are other th things that you don't have but that's because you've asked God, and these are talking about Christians here, you've asked God, but God doesn't give it to you because you ask with the wrong motives to simply gratify wrong desires. And so God is not giving that to you. And then he continues this kind of strong language. It, it's very interesting to me. He, he starts out in this next verse, he's gonna use the word adulteresses. That's not a word we throw out a lot anymore but it's very descriptive. But it's not adulterers, it's adulteresses. It's in the female, which is very interesting because basically we're reminded through this that James reminding us that we are, if you're a believer, we are the bride of Christ. But we have been unfaithful to him. 
That's the picture that comes in the mind, that all Christians are truly the bride of Christ. We've been unfaithful. It's interesting, that word adulteresses, that's written before everybody got so sensitive about everything, you know? So he just throws it out there. Here's how it goes, verse four. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He who jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And that, that, that verse five is a, kind of a tough verse. But basically before that in verse four, he's just telling us, hey, the closer we are to the world's standards and what the world wants for us and the world's system and the world's desires, then all, the closer we get to that, the further we get from God. Because God has given us a different way to live and it's not the same. Pursuing worldly things is earthly wisdom and it leads to spiritual adultery. That's what he's saying. We need godly wisdom desperately. And we need godly wisdom because wisdom, godly wisdom, is vital to relationships. And any other wisdom that we follow is actually destructive to relationships. And God values relationships. God values community. As a matter of fact, you can't really follow God's commands if you're not in relationship with other people. I, I've mentioned this years ago, but when I, years ago when I was a young man, my goal in life was to work long enough that I could get some money together, that I could buy some land in the Rocky Mountains, living in Colorado at the time, and then I could build a cabin on the land. You know, I mean, that was my goal. I was living, and so I can get away from crowds and get away from people and just be up in the mountains in nature, you know, by myself, with God, but by myself. That was my goal. Of course, I had a picture of what that cabin would look like and where that could be. Although more realistically, it probably looked like this, but if, if I built it. But my whole point was, you know, yeah, this will be great. But then as I was kind of planning to do that, I realized that it was not what God wanted me to do. It's almost like I, this didn't happen, but it was almost like this, you know, where I'm going, hey God, I got this plan, this is a great plan, and God's going, Kevin, have you listened to anything that I've told you? Because he gives us this whole list of one another's, how we love other people. And you can't do that if you're living like a hermit. And he's told us that we are, as his people, to be in community, in family, in a place called church. And you can't do church by yourself. And he's saying, hey, as we do this, as we come together in a community, his family, his community, that we learn about him. We learn how to apply it. We encourage other people in their walk with him. All this stuff. And then we learn from others and we grow as we study God's word together, as we interact with each other, as we do our life, as we challenge each other to keep following God. That's God's plan. And we can't do that so easily by ourselves. I mean, sometimes you have to. If you're on a desert island, that's the way it is, right? But not by choice. 
Community and relationships are important to God, and it's especially important in his church. So the last question that James answered, answers gives the solution to conflict that he's been talking about. How does wisdom end conflicts with God and with others? How does that happen? How does the application of not just knowledge, but now wisdom in conflict with God and others? How does that happen? He continues in verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy into gloom. And we're going, wow, that's uplifting. That, that doesn't sound great, but it is. Because James pointing us to submitting to God, resisting the enemy, resisting the devil, purifying our hearts, mourn over our sin. He's painting the picture of true repentance where we know we've done wrong and we even know as a Christian God's forgiven us for it. But we come to God broken in submission We come to God wanting to not do that anymore, to resist that. We come to God broken, and we come to God seeking cleansing. So so we will feel in relationship to him. We come to him wanting to draw near to him, and he'll draw near to us. But hey, God has not really gone anywhere. If you're a believer, God is with you, and nothing can change that. But we don't feel close to God because of what we've done. So we cleanse ourselves by coming back to God in repentance to restore our fellowship with Him once we're a believer. Before we're a believer, we come for the forgiveness that we have to have. True repentance. We admit our sin. We turn to Him for direction in our life. And we can't do that without being humble. He's talking about Humility, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, he continues with it. He says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. Humble yourselves, he's saying. And then he goes on, next couple verses, he talks about, hey, if we've truly humbled ourselves, you know, we won't be talking down other people, especially believers, and we won't judge them in inappropriate ways. But right here in verse 10, he's saying the answer to conflict is humility. The problem is we don't have a good understanding of what humility looks like in our culture today. Humility is not low self-esteem. It's not high self-esteem either. Humility is not that. Humility is not low self-esteem because low self-esteem implies a lack of confidence. Oh, I could never do that. You know, who am I? You know, I couldn't do that. I couldn't tackle that. I couldn't take on that problem. That's not what Scripture's saying humility is. Humility. 
low self-esteem. The perfect example of that really is the man Moses. If you remember the story, God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and then God taps this guy named Moses. He's 80 years old at this point. He's just living in the wilderness somewhere and says, hey, Moses, I want you to go get my people out of there. And Moses, at first he's saying, whoa, 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 God, I, I can't do that. You got the wrong guy. I'm not eloquent. What are you thinking? And God says, no, you're the guy. And then Moses goes to Egypt and he confronts the Pharaoh there who may be the most powerful man on the earth at the time. He was the most powerful man in that region, could have been the most powerful man on earth. And Moses walks in there, a shepherd, walks in, confronts Pharaoh and tells him, by the way, God says, let my people go or a bunch of bad things are gonna happen. And Pharaoh's like, what? And then we know the story, right? But what we don't remember is the Bible calls Moses the most humble man that lived on earth at that time. So humility is not low self-esteem, I can't go do this. Humility is when we realize that we have nothing to offer, but God loves us. And God gives us something that we've never had before. And it kind of originated with C.S. Lewis, I think. Remember, you've probably all heard this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less, as in less often. The proud, we, in our culture, we see it all the time. The proud are the ones who are focusing on their rights and they always somehow feel snubbed by something. Proud people don't forgive other people. Proud people melt down about how they're treated. But God followers can be truly humble and still have great confidence in what God can do through them in their life. Because we understand the enormity of God's love for us. We understand that he loves us in spite of our failures, in spite of our rebellion against him. He still loves us. And, and in humility, and that's what James is talking about here, we can repent, but it, you have to be humble in order to repent. We come to God broken saying, God, I know I've done this and it's wrong because you say it's wrong. And, and our whole approach to God at salvation and from then on is, hey, God, I know I deserve hell, separation from you forever because of the wrongs that I've done. But because of Jesus, please accept me. And he does. And we come into connection, into relationship with God forever. And to the degree we understand that, that's the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom leads to inner confidence because we understand our worth to God, even though we don't deserve it. That God doesn't just like us, that God loves us. And he, he doesn't just love us by saying it, he loves us sacrificially with action, that Jesus would die for us. Why us? 
Well, that's more about the character of God than us. And so when we approach God that way as a new believer, it's God, and we might, we might understand why is this? Why do we have to come to God this way? Or, well, because we've all sinned against God. And some people might ask, well, well, why? Why did God create a world where everybody sinned? And it's all about relationship. It's all about having a, rela- a free will relationship with God. In order for that to happen, God had to give us a free choice, free will. He doesn't just want followers. He wants followers who want to do life with him. And so that's why in the garden, you have a perfect environment and two people there. And hey, you can eat of any tree and everything's perfect and it's great. And then God does something really unusual. He says, oh, oh, one more thing. Here's this one tree. Don't eat of that one. Why? Why would he do that? Because he's giving us a free will choice to do what he says or rebel against him. And we've all rebelled. We've all, we've all done the same thing as Adam and Eve have done. But God still loves us. And so God comes up with this plan that's the perfect fix, different than every other religion in the world. You see, you can have religions who say they're based on truth, and then they have all these rules and this, that, and the other thing, and you do that and you're good to go. Or you can have religion that's based on God's love, not God's law, and then it's like kind of anything goes and it doesn't really matter because God loves you and everything's going to be okay and God would never send anybody to hell. But there's only one religion, Christianity, that's based on absolute truth and God's law and Love in its highest form, self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial love. Where God says, I cannot back off on truth by telling you it's okay that you did these things. Wrong is wrong, God's saying. And as a righteous judge, we would expect him to say that. But because I love you, I'm going to make a way. But it's going to cost. It's going to be Jesus dying on the cross to absorb the penalty of your sin so after that sin is absorbed by God and paid for, then God can grant forgiveness to us and our sin has already been paid for and we don't have to do it. But it takes humility to receive that, right? We have to have the knowledge that we understand that truth But then we have to have the wisdom to apply it in our own life. And when we do that, that takes humility to come to God in that way and say, God, I know I deserve hell forever based on your law. But based on your love, I know you're offering me relationship forever and forgiveness through Jesus alone and my faith in him. And so the biggest question, the most important question that we could talk about today is simply, have you humbled yourself before God? Have you come to that point? And then if you have, are you living like you have? Are you following God's wisdom and not getting caught up with what the world seeks and the world desires? Let's stand together for prayer.
God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your self-sacrificing love. And God, we thank you for showing us what true humility is all about, even in your son. And Father, we ask you to help us live in a way that honors you. God, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to keep pursuing wisdom from above that you're offering to us. If we'll just take it. And Father, for those of us who are not believers in here, our friends, our family, people from our community that we care about, Father, I pray, we pray, Lord, that they would come to more knowledge about you and then that they would get to the next step where they would apply that knowledge of your forgiveness in their own life. And that's called wisdom. So God, we ask that you'd give them knowledge and wisdom. And Father, that you'd draw them to yourself, help them to see and help us as a church to be faithful, to be pointing people to you. And God, we thank you most of all for Jesus. In Christ's name we pray.